you know, I had this moment when I was about to start testifying, and I was thinking, okay, Noah, you know, you're going to be the first witness at the first hearing where someone is going to say under oath that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors and should be removed from office. And I thought to myself, that's not, like, that's not something small. Was there a quid pro quo? The answer is yes. He was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy. And those two things had just diverged. What you've seen in this room over the past two weeks is a show trial. This president believes he is above the law, beyond accountability. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Donald Trump has become the third president in U.S. history to be impeached. The U.S. House of Representatives has approved two charges against him. The first one charging the president abused his power by soliciting the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Article 2 charging obstruction of Congress for defying subpoenas issued by the House of Representatives. The matter now shifts to the Senate, which will hold a trial in the coming weeks to determine Trump's guilt or innocence. If two-thirds of the 100-member Senate vote to convict Trump, he would be forced from office. I would be totally surprised if there were 67 senators to remove the president. That has not happened to any U.S. president and is unlikely in a Republican-controlled Senate. How will the impeachment process affect Trump's chances for re-election? It's a very sad thing for our country, but uh, it seems to be very good for me politically. Our guest today says that's the wrong question and that Americans should be focused on what the impeachment process tells us about the health of U.S. democracy. With Congress more polarized than at any time in living memory and the appointment of federal judges already a partisan battleground, could impeachment become just another political weapon routinely wielded by the House majority? I apologize if I'm early. Hi, how are you? Um, Noah Feldman is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and one of the legal scholars who testified before Congress during the impeachment hearings in November. In the room, it's genuinely a weird experience. You know, you sit down and there's nothing but reporters in front of you. Dozens and dozens of them. And they're sitting there taking pictures of you. And then the gavel goes and the reporters all sit down and the photographers sit down. And suddenly behind them, as emerging as though from behind a curtain, are all of these congressmen and women just staring at you. He hosts a podcast called Deep Background from Pushkin Industries. We spoke to him from the studios at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY in New York City. Noah, in your testimony before the House Judiciary Committee last month, you argued that there are clear grounds to impeach the 45th president. Could you explain to our listeners what those grounds are? Sure. The basic core ground is that President Trump committed a high crime and misdemeanor under the Constitution by abusing the office of the presidency. And he abused the office of the presidency by using his power, the power that only he as president has, to solicit from the president of Ukraine a series of investigations or announcement of those investigations that would help him get reelected in 2020. So he was using the power of the presidency for personal advantage to distort the outcome in an upcoming election. And that is the core heartland of what counts as an abuse of power, high crime and misdemeanor. The second ground of impeachment is obstruction of Congress. And this comes from the fact that when the House began its impeachment inquiry, 
Trump told all of his associates in the White House officially and in the executive branch to stonewall, not to give any participation of any kind. And that meant no documents, and he was ordering individuals who worked for him now or who used to work for him not to appear and testify. And that is a violation of the constitutional principle that the House of Representatives has, quote, the sole power of impeachment. That means it's the job of the House to supervise the president's behavior, to investigate him when he's done something wrong, in order to impeach him. And if they can't do that, then nobody can supervise the president because he's not going to supervise himself. You mentioned high crimes and misdemeanors, and the Constitution's framers did not really specify what they meant by that. Why would the framers agree that the charges against Trump qualify? So first, just a bit of background. The framers used the phrase treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So they did mention two, and treason they defined with a lot of detail. Bribery they just left to people's understanding based on what they knew from English common law and statutory law. The words other high crimes and misdemeanors refers very concretely to the way that the House of Commons in England used to impeach royal officials, and the House of Lords in England used to try those officials in order to determine whether they should be punished in various ways, including removal from office. Although in England, they could give more punishment than we do. Our impeachment is only removal from office. But in Britain, if you were successfully removed uh, and convicted by the House of Lords, you could also receive other kinds of punishments, up to and including imprisonment, fines, and maybe even execution under some circumstances. So the framers weren't writing on a blank slate. They were using a phrase that had a clear meaning that was known to pretty much everybody at the time from the examples from England. So in order to figure out what they meant, you can look at two things. You can look at what they did in England, and you can use lots and lots of examples of abuse of office, high crimes and misdemeanors, because there were lots of impeachments even going on at the time of the Constitutional Convention. Or you can look to what the framers themselves discussed in the Constitutional Convention when they were coming up with these words. Both of those point very clearly to the idea of the abuse of office as the core crime of high crimes and misdemeanors. Specifically, the abuse of office means you take an office where you're supposed to serve the people and you flip it to serving your own personal interests for your own personal gain and advantage. So there were lots of impeachments for that sort of thing in England. And when the framers spoke in the Constitutional Convention about what they were worried about, they talked about a president who would spare no means whatever to get himself reelected. That's a direct quote from one of the founding fathers, a guy called William Davey from North Carolina. They worried about a president who engaged in corruption, who engaged in schemes of peculation, which is their fancy word for embezzlement. And they worried about a president who tried to break the electoral process by, for example, making a deal with a foreign power, not so far from what President Trump tried to do, or by bribing people who were voting for them, vote buying. You know, sometimes you don't really know what the framers meant by some word. And originalists are people who believe the only way you should interpret the Constitution is by asking, what did the framers think? I'm not an originalist because I think there are all kinds of things the framers didn't think about. You know, they didn't say very much at all or anything really about abortion. They couldn't even imagine a cell phone. So they don't say anything about, you know, what privacy should mean in our smartphones. But there are some things where they were super clear. And you don't have to be an originalist to think that the way to interpret the Constitution is to start with the framers. In fact, if you believe, as I do, that our Constitution is alive, a living document, you still start with the framers to figure out what they were doing. And if their values are consonant with and consistent with our values today, then you, you do what they thought. So slavery, no, we don't listen to the framers because they had wrong, morally wrong views, and we've gotten past those views. 
When it comes, however, to worry that the president of the United States will use the tremendous power of his office to get himself reelected by breaking the electoral system, we're just as worried about that today as they were then, and we should be. Before Trump, only two U.S. presidents had been impeached, Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998. Richard Nixon actually avoided that fate in 1974 by resigning before the House voted on articles of impeachment. How do the charges against Trump compare with those against Clinton and the allegations against Nixon? In a sense, they're much sharper examples of high crimes and misdemeanors. And to explain why that is, let me start by just saying a word about what does the word high mean in the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors. So the first thing is the word high modifies both crimes and misdemeanors. So it's not high crimes and misdemeanors, it's high crimes and high misdemeanors. And the word high doesn't mean nasty or really bad. It means political. It means connected to high political office. Now, Bill Clinton was impeached for lying under oath about his sexual affair with Monica Lewinsky. No question that that was a crime. No question that it was morally reprehensible. I'm not even touching on the underlying conduct of having an affair with your 21-year-old intern, also morally wrong. But the lying under oath was almost certainly not connected to his office. It wasn't really a high crime. It was a crime, but it wasn't a high crime. At least that's my view. I think Republicans at the time said, well, the president is also the chief law enforcement officer in the country. So if he breaks the judicial system by lying under oath, that counts as a high crime. That was their argument. I don't think it was super convincing. Today, we might say, no one said this at the time, but say we might say, well, if we're looking for an abuse of office, it's an abuse of office to have an affair with your intern. That's not exactly the kind of abuse of office that the framers probably had in mind, but that might be true. I mean, I myself am more open to that view today than I was 20-odd years ago. That said, Clinton's conduct was not designed to break the system of government, and it wasn't trying to get him reelected. It wasn't, in a sense, a crime against the people of the United States, which is what Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers said a high crime was. He said it was a political crime against the people of the country. Richard Nixon was committing, in a sense, crimes against the people because although it was his campaign, not him, who sent the Watergate burglars to break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters to plant bugs there, he covered it up and was engaged in the cover-up. And although we don't know exactly what the president knew and when he knew it even to this day, we do know that he was actively engaged in criminal activity as part of the cover-up. That was an act against the country. And in that sense, the charge against Trump for abusing office is analogous to the Nixon charge. The second charge against Trump, the obstruction of Congress, is in a way worse than the analogous charge that was going to be used against Nixon. Because although Nixon famously held back the tapes, he did allow some cooperation between his own White House and his own executive branch and Congress. He didn't say no one can testify. He tried to block certain testimony, but he provided some documents. He allowed other officials to testify. In contrast, Trump went all in. The White House issuing a new declaration of defiance against impeachment investigators. The president's lawyers just sent a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It spells out the administration's refusal to participate in the Democrats' inquiry, arguing that it's unconstitutional. He said, I do not recognize your impeachment authority over me at all. It's an unconstitutional inquiry. I'm not going to participate. And in that sense, his obstruction of Congress goes even further than Nixon's did. Back in September, you wrote that impeachment is fundamentally about the separation of powers. You just noted 
Trump's failure to cooperate with the impeachment investigation denied the House the ability to perform its its constitutionally authorized oversight duties. The House's decision to adopt the Articles of Impeachment probably averted a constitutional crisis, but at what cost? If it were impossible to impeach the president because he just refused to cooperate, then that would really break the Constitution. You know, then you have someone who's above the law. He can't be supervised by his own team because they're his team. And if he can't be supervised by Congress, no one can supervise him. And then we don't live in a democracy. Then it's a dictatorship or an elected monarchy. Now, the cost is, and I think it is a meaningful and a significant cost, that it's not ideal to impeach the president partly for refusing to cooperate in the impeachment process because that's a kind of procedural impeachment. You'd rather have clear knowledge of the conduct that he committed and call that conduct impeachable. So had the president allowed various members of his, of his government, of his staff, to testify, we'd have an even clearer picture than we do now of his abuse of office. And then there wouldn't have to be a charge for obstruction of Congress. I would much rather we had a one-count impeachment here than a two-count impeachment. So I think the cost is you have to explain to the public, well, this is like a second-order impeachment. It's an impeachment because he refused to participate in impeachment. And although I think that's clear enough and I think people get it, I also think it would be better for the impeachment process and for the Constitution if we could just have an argument about did he do it or not? So this obstruction that Trump has engaged in, does that set a dangerous precedent in terms of presidential powers and accountability? Yes, I think it really does set a dangerous precedent. And here's why. We have this unusual situation where the president abused his office on a phone call that other people were listening in on, the text of which was then released, the memorandum recording it was released to the public. So we're in an unusual situation where we know that he abused his office because we can read the record. We're not that dependent on testimony from other people. But imagine a president who didn't release the call the way maybe Donald Trump wishes he hadn't. In that situation, without some investigation, you'll never know whether president committed an impeachable offense or not unless he did it in broad daylight, unless he, as it were, shot someone on Fifth Avenue, which is basically what he did on this phone call. And the precedent that Trump is setting by refusing to cooperate is a precedent that future presidents might well use to say, you can't impeach me now because you have no evidence to impeach me. And you have to ask yourself, if we didn't have the phone call, if all we had was Trump stonewalling, would the Democrats have considered that enough to go far with impeachment? I mean, in principle, we should say yes, but in practice, it might be no. So it's a very, very dangerous precedent. And the only way the Democrats can address that precedent is by impeaching Trump for the obstruction. We've seen presidential power expand by both Democratic and Republican presidents in recent decades, particularly when it comes to foreign policy and with war making. And we've seen you know, certainly Donald Trump has used executive orders, but certainly, you know, we can look back at George W. Bush and Barack Obama using executive orders rather than legislation. So has the bipartisan embrace of what, I mean, we can call an imperial presidency rendered impeachment obsolete? That's a great question, and it's a hard one. So the background to it, as you say, is that executive power has been growing at least since World War I. So for at least a century, 
each president has been a little more powerful vis-a-vis Congress than all of the presidents who came before. And this is independent of political party. No president has really stepped back the expansion of executive power. Even Barack Obama, who came to office partly having criticized George W. Bush's strong assertions of executive power, he hired really brilliant lawyers, some of them my colleagues. They justified his expansions of executive power more cleverly than the Bush people justified theirs, but they still expanded the power of the office of the presidency. Now, the question you're asking, I think, is in light of that expansion, does impeachment even bother a president unless he's removed? And I think, you know, the answer to that is we don't know yet. Bill Clinton was deeply damaged by the fact of the impeachment against him. He really, really didn't want to be impeached. It harmed his legacy. Al Gore definitely had a harder time getting elected because he had to distance himself from Clinton. And you could even argue that Hillary Clinton, more than 16 years after the impeachment process, 18 years after the, 17 or 18 years after the impeachment process, was herself damaged by the fact that her husband had been impeached when he was president. So that had consequences for Bill Clinton. Donald Trump will probably just say to himself, who cares if they've impeached me? It's a form of censure. I don't care. The House Democrats announced these two flimsy, pathetic, ridiculous articles of impeachment. This is the lightest, weakest impeachment. You know, our country's had actually many impeachments. You call judges and lots of uh, many impeachments. But it was on today, everybody said, this is impeachment light. And unless they actually remove me in the Senate, which, as you mentioned, is extremely unlikely, he may say, it's just, you know, water off the duck's back. It doesn't bother me at all. If that were the case, that would be very unfortunate for our constitutional structure, because it would mean that without a two-thirds vote in the Senate, there is no way to even limit or constrain the president. And that would be genuinely unfortunate. And it would be a failure in a constitutional system that was not set up for the president to be an emperor. You know, just a final thought on this. When the framers wrote the Constitution, they were sure that Congress would be the most powerful and important branch of government. It was the people's house and they were creating a republic. Article one of the Constitution is about Congress, not about the president. The president was thought to be a distant second in terms of power. He gets article two and the Supreme Court an even more distant third. That's article three. So the framers would be astonished by how much power our president has. Now, that grows out of our long history. And because I am not an originalist, but a living constitutionalist, I think it's okay that our constitution has evolved. But it's definitely evolved in ways that make the president way more powerful than anyone imagined. So Congress has this tool of impeachment, and that's part of maintaining the separation of powers. But as we've been discussing, it really does sound like its political returns seem to be diminishing. And when you take a look at history, Johnson was impeached by the House, he was acquitted in the Senate, and then he served out his term. And when you take a look, Nixon resigned rather than take his chances in the Senate. Clinton was impeached in his second term and left office with more than 60% of the popular support. Trump's likely not to be convicted, and he plans to run for a second term in 2020. And there is a possibility that he could win. And even if he doesn't, many, I think, will ask, what was the point of this exercise? Well, I think there are two points of it. The first has to do with there is some question of whether whether he will be reelected. If Trump is reelected, then we really have to ask hard questions about why we're doing this at all. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But assume that he loses for the sake of argument. I think the public would say, probably, and more importantly, history will say, 
Here's a president who won the first time without a popular majority. He was impeached but not removed. Then he was removed from office. And people will say, look, being impeached has an effect on you. It'll always be hard to distinguish cause from effect, and maybe he was only impeached because he was unpopular. But if he loses the next election, history will say that the impeachment, even if it doesn't lead to removal, was a factor in the end of his presidency. But now consider the scenario where he's reelected. And, you know, it's even conceivable that, re- that being impeached without being removed will help him. I want to be really clear that from a long-term constitutional standpoint, he should be impeached anyway, even if it's not going to lead to his removal. And even if at the margin it might help him a little bit in his reelection process, it's still crucially important for the House to impeach. And here's why. These were not secret actions that he took. We can all read the transcript of the call. It's on the surface. We could all listen to the testimony on television. It's public. The evidence is so overwhelming that Trump abused his office for personal advantage and gain to break the electoral process, that if the House doesn't impeach him, then the House Democrats are saying this is fine. Now, it's bad enough if Republicans say it's fine. It really is. That's bad enough. But if the Democrats, who aren't even his party, said, well, you know what, this happens all the time, then it's as though they're listening to acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney, who famously said at a press conference, get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. You know, we we can't get over the idea that the president abused his office without compromising the basic structure of our democracy. Now, that's my view about why it's the right thing to do to go far with impeachment. There's also a political reason for the Democratic leadership, which was, to begin with, very reticent in the House about doing this. And that is that once these things are so clear to the public, the Democratic base wasn't going to stand for non-impeachment. I mean, the Democratic base, a lot of it wanted impeachment for other things that Trump had done, which might be impeachable, but which don't necessarily have the same immediacy or obviousness as the current charges do. And I think the House leadership realized they were going to lose their own base if they didn't go forward on these facts. And I think that disciplined, that political reality, disciplined the House leadership to do the right thing. You talked about Donald Trump really not having any regard for the House's impeachment process. Is the Constitution and U.S. institutions resilient enough to withstand someone like Trump, who has little to no regard for unwritten norms and precedents, much less the rule of law? Well, let me say something optimistic and then something pessimistic. The optimistic thing is, yes, our institutions are robust enough to survive one president who breaks the rules and flouts the authority of Congress. We can take that, especially if Trump is not reelected. Even if he is reelected, the fact that the House of Representatives will have impeached him will be a historical marker and a political marker that this kind of conduct is not okay. And yes, Trump ignored the House, but the House impeached him for it. And even if the Senate doesn't remove him, it's still a stain on his record, and it's still a statement by one of the political parties, at least, that this shall not stand. Here's the pessimistic thing. You know, if Trump is defended by Republicans on the ground that they don't believe he did this at all, okay, you know, I don't read the facts that way, and I have a hard time imagining anyone really reading the facts that way in good conscience, but okay, people are, can make different determinations. If Republicans say, of course he did it, and it was fine, that to me is sort of a disaster from the standpoint of what I would call popular political virtue. So if the main Republican defense in the Senate is, sure he did it, but it's fine to do this. This is normal. And if the public then reelects Donald Trump, then the public is to some extent saying, you're right, Republicans in the Senate. 
this is fine. That, to me, undercuts the basic idea of what I would call political virtue, which is the idea that the public actually wants its politicians to follow the rules and govern appropriately. And, you know, all the way back to the founders, James Madison said in the Virginia Ratifying Convention that if the people don't have political virtue, it's just not realistic to imagine that the government's going to work. Now, in the end, you know, a republic or a democracy is a government of the people. And if the people think that it doesn't matter what the president does, that he doesn't have to follow the rules, no president's going to follow the rules. And, you know, we're accustomed in the United States to being very confident in the political virtue of our public, that we collectively care about the rules, that we care about the rule of law, that we care about preserving the fairness of democracy. But it's not written down somewhere, you know, magically, that the people of the United States have to have sufficient political virtue to maintain a democracy. You know, there have been countries in history that have had democracies, maybe not perfect ones, but democracies, and have voted in people who became dictators. And sometimes they knew they were voting in people who became dictators. Well, you talk about political virtue, and Mitch McConnell, who was the majority leader in the Senate, has already said that— Everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position. He will coordinate with the White House on Donald Trump's impeachment trial. I mean, that certainly is—goes against this concept of political virtue and the concept of a separation of powers. It sounds pretty bad. I mean, there's just no way around it. The Senate is supposed to have a trial. A trial is supposed to be a fair process. And that process is not supposed to be coordinating with the defendant in the process. That said, impeachment is also a political process. And politics involves parties. And parties have the capacity to really break constitutional norms. You know, the Founding Fathers, in general, did a good job of designing a constitution. They sort of had two major failings. One was moral and one was practical. Their big moral failing was slavery, right? They wrote a constitution that actually depended on a compromise, not only between big and small states, which we all learn about in civics, but also between slave states and states that were moving away from slavery. So that compromise was fundamentally immoral. They couldn't have had a constitution without it, to be starkly honest. So they made the compromise. Their practical failure was that they thought that they could head off national political parties. They imagined, and especially James Madison, imagined that he had come up with a plan of diffusing power from the state level, where political parties were already a problem, to the federal level, where wise, intelligent, thoughtful people would be elected, especially to the Senate, where they wouldn't coordinate with local parties. And he just thought he had beaten political parties. And that was just wrong. And he discovered that very soon. Within five or six years after ratification, he was active in the formation of one of the two first political parties. In fact, he was the leader in the formation of the party that was called the Democratic Republicans. Hamilton was running the other big party, the Federalists. So he knew very soon that he had been wrong. But by then, the Constitution was already in place. And so the thing about political parties is they can sometimes, through their sense of solidarity, overcome basic principles of constitutional fairness. And this is a good example, right? The president should be tried by the Senate, and the Senate is supposed to be a separate institution, and that's how the framers envisioned it. But if there's a political party called the Republicans and the Senate majority leader belongs to that party and the president belongs to that party and the majority leader realizes that he needs that president to be there in the next election to help him get reelected, well, then political parties have to some extent defeated the basic constitutional structure of the separation of powers. So that's a genuine imperfection in our Constitution. Noah, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? It gives me hope that the House of Representatives is taking seriously its responsibility to investigate the president's misconduct, 
and to take action against it in the form of impeachment. That's been a serious process, a solemn process. It's partisan, I think, primarily because the Republican Party is refusing even to consider the possibility that Trump might have violated his oath of office. So it's partisan. But the House could have said, and it sometimes looked in the last year like they were going to say, you know what, don't bother us with this. Let's just not talk about impeachment. Let's just get to the election. And when the evidence became so overwhelming that the president had abused his office, it was still possible that the Democratic leadership would hold off. So it makes me hopeful that someone in the country still recognized a responsibility to the Constitution and to the values of the rule of law. Noah, thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Noah Feldman. He is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Sign and Rachel Dunna. Please note that we'll be on a holiday break returning with a new episode on January 7th. From the Opinion Has It team, we wish you a happy holiday and a happy new year. <laughs>